Hello, church family. Really glad to have you in worship. Even though I can't be with you for worship in this service, I did want to take the opportunity to introduce our guest speaker. Sean Green is with us this morning, and Sean is a good Hoosier. Indiana boy graduated from high school in Arcadia, Indiana, and for the last few years has been helping out a church in Rhode Island. Uh, he and his wife, Amber, went out there to take a struggling congregation, a fairly new congregation that had gone through a church split. They brought them back to good health. And uh, so today we're, we're honored and privileged to have him preach for us. My only regret is that I'm not there in person to hear him speak, so I'll have to listen a little bit later on online. You're good listeners. You always give the speakers great attention. I have always appreciated that about this congregation. So do Sean the same honor that you do to the rest of us. Listen well, because what he'll have to say is really good stuff. Glad to have Sean with us today. See you next week. Well, good morning, Sherwood Oaks. How are you guys doing today? It is uh, such an honor for, for me to be here this morning. Uh, my wife and I, we served at a ministry in Owensboro, Kentucky for nine years. Don't hold that against us. We lived in Kentucky. Uh, but, but whenever we would find ourselves with a weekend off, a lot of times we would wind up in the Bloomington area. My in-laws live here. Uh, they worship here with you all. And so we would join them for worship. And so Sherwood Oaks throughout the years uh, has really ministered to us when we've had a chance to kind of take some time and breathe and refocus on our relationship and our commitment to the Lord. Um, you also put up with my good friend, John Muffler, which is no easy task. And so I commend you and I pray for you as you continue along that journey. Uh, like Tom said, my family and I, we recently moved back from Providence, Rhode Island, uh, where I led a church plant for the last few years. I grew up on the north side of Indianapolis in a little town called Cicero. And so being from the Indy area, that means that I have grown up a lifelong Colts fan, which made living in New England really hard over the last few years because I was surrounded by Patriots fans. And if you know a Patriot fan, then you know that they really are the worst. Uh, like they are the most obnoxious of all fans, right up there with the Big Blue Nation, uh, which now I have alienated two places that I love in this sermon already, and I'm just getting started. Uh, well, back in 2014, uh, the Colts were up in New England for a uh, playoff game at Foxborough, and so me and a buddy who is a Pats fan, uh, we decided, hey, let's get tickets and let's go to the game. And Unfortunately, as is usually the case in the playoffs, uh, the Patriots destroyed the Colts. The final score was like 43 to 22, and honestly, I don't think that the game was really even that close. And on the way out of the stadium, Patriot fans were just berating me, like relentless. It wasn't enough that their team had just destroyed mine. Like now they had to mock me on the way out of the stadium because again, they're the worst. And so the only response that I could come up to in that moment was something along the lines of, yeah, yeah, well, I like our future a whole lot more than yours. We've got a young quarterback on his way to greatness, and all you've got is an aging, washed-up has-been at the end of his career. That was in 2014. Since then, the Patriots have gone on to win two Super Bowls, and uh, that aging, washed-up has-been quarterback, Tom Brady, was the MVP of both of them. <laughs> have you ever been wrong about something? <laughs> Maybe it was something insignificant, like a prediction that didn't really go the way that you thought that it would. Maybe uh, someone didn't make a great first impression on you, uh, but later on you realized, eh, they're not that bad of a person, and you became good friends with them. Maybe uh, you took a job thinking that it was going to be one thing, and then you got three months into it, and you realized, whoa, this is not at all what I was told it was going to be or what I was expecting. 
Whatever it was, all of us, at one time or another, all of us have been wrong about something, or maybe even someone, and most of the times it's pretty insignificant, and we just kind of quickly move along with our life. But sometimes, sometimes being wrong about someone or something has a way of influencing a lot of different things in our life. A wrong conclusion can shape the way that we view ourselves. A wrong conclusion can shape the way that we view others. A wrong conclusion can even shape the way that we view God. And today we're going to be looking at an account in the Bible about a man who was wrong. And it's not just that he made wrong decisions, although he did. His life is kind of marred by these wrong decisions after another. But really what he did is he allowed those wrong decisions to make wrong conclusions about himself and about God. So if you have a, a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16, if you use a Bible app on your device, go ahead and, and pull that out now. Uh, if you don't have one of those things, there is a pew Bible in front of you, and I believe that our text is around page 131. And if you don't want to do any of that, then you can follow along up on the screen here in a little bit. Judges chapter 16. Uh, We're in week two of this series called The Good Book, and over the next several weeks, uh, we are going to be studying some of the most significant chapters and themes that are found throughout Scripture, and we're going to be doing this in a few ways. Uh, One of those ways is through the book, The Good Book, which you can still get a copy of in the lobby. Each day, uh, you'll spend time reading through a chapter uh, in Scripture, and then you'll focus on that chapter with a little devotional that helps us understand it a little bit more and know how we can begin to apply it to our our life. And then over the next several weeks, uh, Tom is going to be preaching on one of those chapters and themes here on, on Sunday mornings that the book draws out. And if you are in a life group, you're going to be studying through this as well. And if you're not in a life group, I really encourage you to get plugged into one. Uh, They are so important for shaping your faith, for giving you a sense of community that you can connect into. Uh, And and so signups are going on for that. I don't think it's too late for you to get plugged into one of those and and study through this on a little bit uh, deeper level. Today, we're looking at the life of Samson. And when we hear the name Samson, many of us think of great strength, right? We think of the long flowing hair, uh, but we also think of someone with great strength. But Samson's life was also characterized by a tremendous amount of weakness and compromise. But in spite of all of that, in spite of his pride, in spite of his weaknesses, in spite of his moral and his spiritual failures, God still used Samson in a mighty way. And and that gives me a whole lot of hope today. Now, to understand our text, we need to understand a couple of things about Samson. Number one, Samson was um, a Nazarite. And and we learn about the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. God tells Moses that for someone to be a Nazarite, they're making a special vow of dedication to the Lord. And there were some requirements that that came with this vow that somebody would make as a Nazarite. Um, As a Nazarite, they must abstain from three things. Number one, they must abstain from wine or other fermented drinks. Number two, they must abstain from cutting their hair. And then number three, a Nazarite must abstain from going near a dead body. Whether it be human or animal, it didn't matter. They just had to abstain from going near a dead body. In fact, it even says in Numbers chapter 6 that if one of your relatives dies while you are in this Nazarite vow, you can't even go to the funeral. Like that's how serious it is about abstaining from being near death. 
And so typically a person would take a Nazarite vow uh, voluntarily, and it would be for a short period of their life. But what we see in Samson is that his vow was given to him before his birth, and it was to be for the entirety of his life. And what we see in this is that God has a special purpose that he was setting Samson aside for. God had a special plan that involved Samson uh, freeing the Israelites from the Philistines who were occupying the promised land during this time. And so Samson was set apart for this task before he was even born. So that's the first thing. Samson was a Nazarite. The second thing that we need to know about Samson is that throughout his life, he really didn't take his Nazarite vow Seriously. In fact, of all the requirements to be a Nazarite, Samson really only took the one about his hair seriously. And in fact, as our, as our text opens today, Samson has just, um, there might be kids in the room, so I'll just say Samson has just spent some time with a lady of ill repute, and he's wandered from his home, he's wandered from God. He just barely eked out of there with his life. And really, at this point in Samson's life, um, his vow and his commitment to God is merely lip service and hair products. <laughs> and it's about to get worse. Judges 16, verse 4. Now, sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And you can almost hear the dun-dun-dun in the text as we read Delilah's name. Delilah is a, made up, a name made up of two Hebrew words that mean uh, to flirt in the night. Very fitting name for what we know about Delilah. And what we're going to find in the following verses is that the only person that Samson is more infatuated with than himself is Delilah. Verse 5. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Now, if you're following along in the Bible, you might see a letter there at the end of verse five. That's a, that's a Bible note telling us, hey, there's some more information here. So if I go down to the bottom of my page, I find that letter and it says that is about 28 there were five Philistine officials around this time. And so each one of them are saying, we're going to give you 28 pounds of silver if you turn Samson over to us. By today's conversion rates, that's $33,150 that they're saying we're going to give you if you betray him. So that shows us that they really wanted to get their hands on Samson. And so Delilah, um, intrigued by this offer, <laughs> Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. She just kind of comes right out there with it. Tell me your secret. Now, Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I will become as weak as any other man. And then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines were upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Now, the way that Samson told Delilah that he could be subdued sounds pretty ridiculous. And most likely, Samson meant for it to be. But it's really not as innocent as it appears. 
You see, bowstrings were made from tendons of animals. And so telling Delilah to tie him up with seven fresh, undried tendons from recently slaughtered animals meant that he was once again trivializing his Nazarite vow. He was asking to be tied up with an object that was unclean for him to even be near. And and we see in this that he is just continuing to compromise, continuing to flirt with this line. He's continuing to go down this this, this snowball effect of sin and this slippery slope um, escalates in his life. Verse 10. Then Delilah said to Samson, you've made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now. Tell me how you can be tied. He said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. And so Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off of his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, if You weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pen, absurdly detailed. (laughs) I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened it with the pen. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pen and the loom with the fabric. And what we see in this is like up to this point, all of this just kind of seems like a big joke to Samson. But now he's starting to play with fire. He's not just toying with Delilah. He's starting to toy with God and he gets his hair involved. It's the only part of his covenant that he has actually kept. And now it's on the table. And it's not like he doesn't know what Delilah is up to. Again, she told him in verse 6, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. You cannot get any more clear than that. But what we see in Samson's life, and throughout this series of events in particular, what we see in Samson's life is that he is trusting his own strength more and more, and he is relying on God's strength less and less. It's a theme of Samson's life in these last couple of chapters that we, that we read about in him. He is, he is trusting in his own strength and power more and more, and he is relying on God's strength in him less and less. But that's what pride does to us, Right? Like pride makes us think that we are invincible. Pride makes us think that we can control everything and everyone, that we can even control the consequences of our actions. Pride makes us flirt with the line of sin and think that we are strong enough to not step over it. The problem is that temptation quickly turns to compromise. And we realize that pride is deceptive. Because the truth is, none of us are as strong as we think that we are. And it's a path that many of us have been on. Maybe it's a path that you find yourself on right now. You're flirting with that line of sin, thinking, I'm good. I got this. And Delilah, knowing that this is the path that Samson's on and that she's about ready to cash in, she plays into Samson's infatuation with her and she begins to turn up the charm. Verse 15, then she said to him, and and, I mean, you have to think that like this is a pretty dramatic way of saying this. And so she says to him, how can you say I love you, Samson? 
How can you say this? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strengths. And then when the charm didn't work, Delilah finally got Samson to reveal his secret by using a power that women have been using over men since the beginning of time. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death. My wife doesn't like that line, but I can say that here because I, I'm, I can leave after this service <laughs> or after the next service. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the ruler of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. It's like they all know, hey, this time's different. This time he's, he's opened up, he's told us. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll just go out as before and shake myself free. And this is one of the most saddest parts of, of this, this passage and of really of Samson's life. The end of verse 20. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He had become so self-reliant that he did not realize that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. Samson's infatuation with Delilah and his overconfidence in his own strength is ultimately what leads to his failure. It's what leads to his demise. Samson made the mistake of confusing his physical power with spiritual strength. And in the end, he wound up with neither one of those things. And so now Samson finds himself sitting in a prison cell, blind, broken. He's been betrayed. He's held only by this once great strong man is held only by a, a weak pair of bronze shackles. Samson is lost. He has wandered from his home. He has wandered from his God. He has broken his covenant. And now he's suffering the consequences for it. And I'm sure in this moment, Samson is thinking to himself, I'm done. I am too far lost to ever be used by God again. I am too far lost for God to love someone like me. My failures are too great for God to ever use a person like me. But he was wrong. He was wrong. And, and right here in the middle of all of this brokenness, an unlikely event happens. Grace makes an appearance. Verse 22, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Samson's hair begins to grow back. It's a very natural thing, but it, it shows us more is happening in Samson's life. I think, I think what the author is saying in here is that more importantly than his hair, Samson's faith begins to grow back. 
that in a dark prison cell surrounded by death and despair, growth begins to happen. Verse 22 reminds us of a gracious God who never leaves us, who never forsakes us. A gracious God who will never give up on you. A gracious God that can use even your failures. And in the depth of his sin, Samson finds the beginning of God's grace and something inside of him begins to change. And at the end of his life, as the rulers of the Philistines are throwing a party because they had just captured their greatest enemy, they're they're parading Samson around to make a spectacle of him, God uses him one last time. Judges 16 verse 25 While they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. And so they called Samson out of prison and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who had held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. That's an important detail. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just one more time and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, he killed many more when he was dead than while he lived. In this one final act, Samson fulfilled the purpose of his Nazarite vow. He eliminated the entire Philistine leadership. It was a huge setback in their conflict with Israel. And it ended up being the the transition that God used to allow his people to gain the upper hand on their enemy. And, And I read the end of an account like this. And I think to myself, if God can use someone like Samson, then surely God can use someone like me. If God can use someone like Samson, then surely he can use someone like You, despite your flaws and your failures, despite my many flaws and my many failures, God wants to use us for his plans and his purposes for his kingdom in this world. You see, the truth is, is that God has not left you. He has not given up on you. And what we find in Samson's life, we also find to be true in ours. The depth of your sin is the beginning of God's grace. The depth of your sin, we can find the beginning of God's grace and we realize that God is not done with us yet. By grace, God reaches us where we are and he takes us to where he wants us to be. And you may think to yourself, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and my pride has taken me down some really dark roads There's no way that God could love someone like me. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve God's love. And you know what? You're right. You don't. But that's why it's grace. That's why it's grace. And that's why God's love for us is unconditional, unlimited, unmerited grace. You see, when it comes to our past failures, 
we have a choice that we can make. We, we can either give up because of them, we can give in to them, or we can give them over. We, we can give up and we can say, there is no way that God could love someone like me with all of my faults and my failures. We can give in to them and we can say, well, this is just who I am. I'm never going to be any different. And so I might as well be me. And then we point to all the people in the situations that we feel like are holding us back. We can give up because of our failures. We can give in to our failures. But in both cases, we would be making wrong conclusions. Wrong conclusions about ourselves and wrong conclusions about God. When we give up, we think that God's love is too limited and conditional to love someone like us. When we give in, we think that God's love is too weak to save and rescue us from our sin and our brokenness. But in both cases, we'd be wrong. And instead of giving up or giving in, by his grace, God invites us to something better. He invites us to give our failures over to him. So how do we do that? I think that the first thing that we must do is we must embrace God's grace. We, this beautiful transaction that grace provides. We lay down our sin and our brokenness. We lay down our past failures, those times when we didn't correct or we overcorrected. We lay those things down and we take up God's grace for us. Now, the Bible talks about several different types of grace. The one that we are probably most familiar with is God's saving grace through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's God's saving grace through Jesus that removes the stain of our sin. It's God's saving grace that brings us back into a right relationship with him. It's God's saving grace that gives us the hope of heaven. But the Bible talks about another kind of grace, and that is God's enabling grace. By grace, God enables us through the power of his Holy Spirit living inside of us. God enables us to do good works for him despite our fears, despite our doubts, despite our faults, despite our failures. God's enabling grace empowers us to do good works for him. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul seems to imply that God prefers to use you in your weaknesses and failures. Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Did you hear that? God's power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul's response is, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. And then look at how he closes. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, what qualifies you to be used by God is not your strengths. What qualifies you to be used by God is not your previous victories. What qualifies you to be used by God is not how awesome you are, although I'm sure you're pretty awesome. That's not what qualifies you to be used by God. What qualifies you to be used by God is grace alone. His grace demonstrated in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that not only has the power and the ability to save us from our sin, but now enables and, and empowers us to serve in God's kingdom. And so you embrace his grace. Second, you find healing from your hurt, hang-up, or habit. Like whatever that thing is that you think um, is the reason why God can never use a person like you, find healing from that thing. God can use your past failures without a doubt, but he wants to do it in you through a place of emotional and spiritual health. And so find a place 
to recover and surround yourself with people who are going to love you and guide you and disciple you in your walk with Jesus. And if you're not sure where to turn, Sherwood Oaks has um, some, some tremendous ministries that you can get plugged into to find help. Out in the, the welcome desk as you leave today, there's a card that's sitting there that, that lists just some of the care and support and recovery ministries um, that you can find the hope and the healing that you're looking for in your life. And so go out there and pick up one of these cards. And if you're not sure where to turn, call the church office and I'm sure that they'd love to get you connected with someone. And here's the coolest part that happens when, uh, when we seek healing from this hurt or this habit or this hang-up. What we find is that grace transforms your greatest cause of shame into God's greatest source of strength in you. Grace has a way of transforming your greatest cause of shame into God's greatest source of strength in you. In my 16 years of ministry, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen God take someone from the depth of their sin, from the depth of their brokenness, and use them to help people going through the very same thing. Like the thing that they thought would disqualify them from ever being used by God again is the very same thing that God is using in them. His power is made perfect through their weakness. And so I've seen alcoholics leading recovery ministries and reaching more people for Jesus than you and I ever could. I've seen people who've gone through the pain of divorce being used by God to help others who are going through that same pain. I've, I've seen women who have had an abortion come alongside of pregnant moms in need of help. And to me, the most beautiful thing that, that, that we get to see in God's redemptive power is when we see God's grace transform someone's greatest cause of shame into his greatest source of power in their life. He's done it in countless people, even here in this room, I'm sure. And I know he can do it for you too. And finally, make yourself available to God. Make yourself available to God. Say, God, here I am. Faults, fears, failures, and all. And if somehow by grace you can use someone like me, then God, I am all yours. Imagine what it would be like for God to answer a prayer like that in your life. Imagine the joy of God redeeming all of your past hurts and your failures and using them to help others who are in that same place when you make yourself available. I'm sure there are people in the room right now who are thinking to themselves, Sean, all of this sounds good, but you don't know me. Like, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. There is no way that God could love someone like me, let alone use somebody like me. But I'm telling you, you're wrong. And I'm saying this with as much grace and love and pastoral care as I can possibly say it with. You are wrong. Not only can God use someone like you, but friends, I'm telling you, God wants to use someone exactly like you. Faults, failures, fears, and all. You just have to embrace his grace, find healing, and make yourself available to him.